Alright, hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio. It's Dermot here, bringing you a very interesting discussion with Rupture's Dave Murphy and socialist activist Shan Mitchell. Shan has recently made very important contributions to the ongoing debate of whether revolutionary socialists should engage in elections and parliaments. In 2021, he wrote a great pamphlet for Rebel, discussing this topic as well as the electoral strategy of past revolutionaries. We discuss all of this along with related topics. I'll leave a link to the pamphlet in the episode description, and Chan has also written a great book on the working class unity in Belfast's 1932 outdoor relief riots, entitled Struggle or Starve, which I would recommend and will also leave a link to. As always, if you would like to support the podcast, you can do so below at the Patreon link. To kick off the episode, Shan gives an outline of the basis of a revolutionary electoral strategy and what the benefits of this can be. Okay, well, first of all, I think a qualification might be necessary, especially given the unfortunate trade on sections of the far left to cast anyone um, who says anything about elections or parliamentary work as a kind of raven reformist. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that I'm not going to do a wee bit of raving and rant myself in this interview, but uh, hopefully a, a reformist I'm not. Um, so I, I think we should be clear from the outset what we mean by strategy. I'm not trying to be a, a um, stickler uh, here for terms, but because, of course, the terms can be used quite liberally. I mean, we can speak of trade union strategy or a strategy in a particular movement or indeed electoral strategy, and that's all fine. Um, uh, but at a certain level of abstraction. For revolutionaries, the term strategy refers to your model or your mechanism for for winning socialism. And I suppose it may be necessary to highlight a couple of foundational propositions that I think underlie revolutionary social strategy, um, as opposed to a reformist strategy, if you will, and that therefore inform a Marxist approach to electoral work uh, and the parliamentary tactic, and indeed its strengths and, and limitations. The first is the idea, I'm, I'm sure well aware to yourselves, is that the, the, the emancipation of the working class, as Marx famously put it, must be the act of the working class themselves, the idea that workers can only free themselves by their own actions. Um, so for Marxists, the bedrock of any emancipatory project, the foundation of a viable revolutionary social strategy, in other words, has to be the conscious collective self-activity of, of working people themselves, what Trotsky called in one of my favourite quotes, the forcible entrance of the masses, into the realm of rulership over their own, own destiny. Um, now, the second proposition of importance here is the conclusion that Marx and Engels drew from the Paris Commune, later developed by Lenin and others. And again, I think well known across the revolutionary left that, that the state and capitalist society is fundamentally a state for capitalism, that the center of power in capitalism doesn't actually lie within the very limited structures of parliamentary democracy. You know, the idea that behind the facade of democracy lies an unelected bureaucracy who would defend the rule of capital. I mean, these are points well known. I think Rosa Luxemburg put it best in her splendid uh, critique of uh, reformism when she said that the second democracy shows the slightest compunction for defying the logic of capital, then suddenly capitalism loses its interest in democracy. So this is the fun- these are the fundamental pillars for revolutionary social strategy, you know, that it's distinguished by the primacy and power it affords to struggle, protests, marches, mass strikes, and its conviction that the power of capitalism must be broken by what Rosa Luxemburg appropriately called the, the hammer blow of revolution if a democratic socialism is to prevail. Um, so for us, parliament is not the real seat of power in capitalist society. It is in some respects an arena of deception used by you know, conservative forces to establish what Gramsci called consented society. But it's for this precise reason that all the great classical Marxists, 
Gramsci included, but also Marx and Engels themselves, Luxembourg, James Connolly, Lenin and Trotsky, whoever you want, they all insisted that it was imperative for socialists to interrupt this process of deception, to disturb the attempts by conservative and capitalist forces to establish hegemony through elections, by actually getting involved in elections ourselves, for putting up our own candidates and where possible to try and attain a parliamentary platform. So mass action is key, and I want to be absolutely clear about that. It's the critical element for change society. But we also have to grasp that elections and parliament have a significant influence on the ideas and organisation of the mass of people themselves, whether we like it or not. And we have to grasp what Lenin called the dialectic of parliament, the idea that it's necessary to seriously engage in elections in the parliamentary process, including things, parliamentary bills, legislative reforms, whatever, in order to expose the limits of uh, democracy under capitalism, in order to popularise socialist ideas and arguments. Crucially, I think, this is often ignored, to strengthen the organisation of the left and the workers' movement outside of parliament. And maybe just... Last point I would make regarding this, you know, there's an old, well-known sort of anarchist, I don't know, ultra-left objection to electoral work that says we shouldn't focus on elections, we should focus on the struggle. Often the classic example of this is in the US, where sort of periodically social movements kind of fold into conventional politics behind the Democratic Party. But then again, I mean, this is, I would argue at least that this is precisely why it's criminal for the left to abscond from the electoral process. If the US left is ever to break the Democrats' hegemony over progressive movements, then this will obviously necessitate uh, in some form, and I can't dictate the precise forms, an electoral intervention that, that can challenge it, an electoral intervention and an alternative that subordinates itself to movements that stands for the very purpose of building and strengthening movements. So I think these are the core propositions. You know, the electoral and parliamentary work are a necessary tactic for socialists, necessary tactic for winning the battle for democracy, as the Communist Manifesto put it, within a wider strategy rooted in mass self-activity, and the belief that, uh, as your own uh, podcast put, puts it, a rupture with capitalism is necessary. Just, um, like, there's a lot to unpack there in terms of, like, uh, what, what Sean's uh, said there. Um, just, like, one of the things, and it's, it's the thing that I initially thought of um, when we started this was, like, the first point he made was um, kind of along the lines that there'll be people who will be, like, who would attack the idea about standing in elections and there'll be other people on the left and like, there was one interesting point that I thought in the initial stages of Sean's pamphlet um, on elections and hegemony um, around the idea, he, 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 like Sean, when you're writing, you had two different parts. You, you, you described like sort of like a conservative or right wing view of Lenin and elections as being this like anti-democratic guy. Then you also spoke about like the activist tradition in terms of like elections. And I thought that was a good like separation in terms of the two because i do think you've kind of described like on the left there can be this like aversion to elections in that they are oh, they lead you down a reformist road and you're trying to paint paint lenin as some like you know like so, social democrat like um but like i do think like there, there is like a clear thing in in this pamphlet that sean wrote about like taking elections seriously and the role that they can play in terms of like um building towards like revolutionary movements like, you, you had a quote there that like um like the revolution won't be made through um an election um but it can help to assist like Lenin said like it can help elections can help to win uh the sympathy of the math it was something along those lines and i do think like one of the key points in terms of like kind of what Lenin is saying is that like um he speaks about like having a boycott for the i think the 1906 duma but then he realised that like sections of the working class were looking towards this parliament, 
and after the revolutionary struggle had ebbed that like this was where for a lot of working class people in terms of consciousness where it was like politics was kind of playing out to an extent and that it was like stupid like not to have your voice like in there and i do think that like if you look back in terms of like like this is kind of an argument that's like 1906 1907 but then afterwards after 1917 into the 1920s after the post-revolutionary surge dips and like into like 1922 1923 when there's capitalist restoration this is kind of an argument that like lenin comes up with again and again again like it's the basis of like a lot of like left-wing communism and infantile disorder like and i do think that's interesting that like some of those ideas still kind of like remain um in terms of how to use elections especially considering the current period we're, we're, we're in for the last few years where there hasn't really been like that much struggle on the streets um but like how, how do you see like going back like like the activist tradition view of elections like it, it can be quite narrow sometimes but then like having a broad view of elections can lead you down like a reformist road well, I, I'll just uh, stress a, a couple of points. Um, first of all, on the question specifically about, uh, or, or the general point about Lenin. I mean, one of the interesting things when you, you read um, uh, Lenin's contribution to this question, I mean, it's absolutely abundantly clear that he considers elections, parliamentary, tech, uh, parliamentary work more generally to be a tactic, right? And I think that's, um, I think we all grasp that, right? You know, it's, it's not, it's the lowest form of work, as, as he put it. Um, uh, and therefore, it has to be applied. But I think that what a lot of the, the left misunderstand is, you know, in a period of, let's put it, the defeat of the revolution after 1905, Lenin argues um, briefly for a period of boycott. But after that, in, for the period 1906 onwards, in, which is a lull in the struggle during the period of the war, the beginning of it, and indeed during the period of the uh, revolution. Lenin advocates the necessity of, of electoral work, and he also advocates it for the what you may call the Western Communist parties. In other words, and not only does he advocate of the Western Communist parties, he suggests that electoral work is even more important in the West than it was in the East. And I think sometimes that this is this is uh, ignored. In other words, that there's people who will accept the abstract argument that electoral work is maybe a necessary tactic, which is absolutely correct, um, that it is a tactic but that maybe underestimate that just how persistently and consistently Lenin advocated for that, for, 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 for that tactic um, in all manner of different circumstances, during a low in the struggle, during an increase in the struggle, during the context of a, essentially a full democracy in, uh, in, in Russia, in the context of a revolutionary situation, and indeed in the context of what Marx has called uh, bourgeois democracy. Now, how it's applied, I think is we have to critically grasp it has to be creatively applied. We can't just go and read Lenin and apply it concretely and expect the same results. But the broad propositions, I think, are of crucial importance for us. And like that was actually one of the interesting things in your pamphlet. One of the people that you, the books that you quoted, when he, he, he went through like Lenin's collected works and was like, elections are the second most discussed subject, like trying to emphasize that like Lenin took them seriously um, or how Lenin studied elections and used them to like get a view of like, the overall objective situation. The, the fact that they were involved right up to 1917, like only 1905 was the boycott, and right up until the eve of, of the Russian Revolution, it was involved in all the work, I think, is, is striking. Um, just something I want to touch on before we kind of get into more specifics on on how past Marxists like Lenin treated elections and, and what the strategy laid out there is. Um, I think currently, and in the last few years, 
we've certainly seen both reformist and revolutionary sections of the left discuss ideas of class struggle elections or similar ideas of linking parliamentary or electoral struggle with movements of the working class or rebuilding that broader movement of the working class. Um, I wonder, Shan, what relationship do you see between elections, electoral positions and building movements? And also, um, how do you see this discussion kind of playing out uh, internationally, I guess, both in Ireland and elsewhere? Yeah, well, I think that the I mean, in some respects, it's a critical question because there's undoubtedly people who place electoral and parliamentary considerations above the needs of the mass movement. I mean, the kind of politics we're discussing here is peripheral, really, on the left. The tendency is, is much more, more prominent towards, you know, a left liberal or left reformist uh, type, type con- conception. But I also think it's unhelpful to draw a kind of dichotomous distinction between electoral work and social movements that says it's either or, which is also quite common, particularly on the on the radical and revolutionary left. And I think if we look at the history of people for profit in the last decade, for example, I think it's very clear that we have, you know, in our own way, quite skillfully and uh, I suppose energetically attempted to use both our election campaigns, but also the platforms we've attained to, to strengthen or even initiate mass struggle. Um, I mean, if you take the issue of repeal, for example, I mean, it's unquestionably the case that what we won around repeal was largely the result of, you know, persistent campaigning over many years, and particularly the mass movements that emerged after the death of Savita. So I don't want to overstate this, but I'm absolutely convinced that the presence of people like Reed Smith, uh, Claire Daly, Ruth Coppinger and others seriously helped to pull that situation along to expose the government on their own turf and to at times give confidence to the movements on, on the outside. I, I also think it was absolutely the case of the water charges too. I mean, socialist TDs did not defeat the water charges, let's be clear. But there's no doubt, I think, that the presence of a socialist bloc inside Doyle helped to strengthen that movement. Um, you know, I think people for profit TDs were critical to the launching of the right to water, you know, the actions and activity in Jobstown by Paul Murphy and so on and so forth. And, and I also should be said, I think that our electoral campaigns helped to drag forces like Sinn Féin kicking and screaming along in the water movement. Um, so, I mean, even in a more modest way, um, I think the experience in the North, I mean, I was part of Jerry Carl's campaign in 2014 when he became a councillor. And within months, he was using that platform and I suppose the authority, if you will, uh, uh, that comes with it to help launch one of the biggest and most sustained Palestinian solidarity movements we have seen, which I think has had a lasting impact in the city. And in some respects, you know, this is less um, uh, prevalent, but nevertheless, I think we've attempted to do it. So we can also use our position to strengthen the organizational workers. I mean, one small example was when our councillor in Belfast, Matt Collins, pulled together council workers from the Falls and Shankill Leisure Centres and indeed across the city that resulted in quite a remarkable joint Shankill Falls march in 2018. Matt's a good activist, right? Um, So I I can't say it's for certain, but I have a feeling if he wasn't a councillor and he attempted to call those workers and call that meeting, they probably would have told him to go jump. So reject, you know, I think we reject the dichotomy between elections and movement building, but it should also be said, and I think here this is important too, we also reject drawing a false equivalence between movement building and parliamentary positions. Um, and I think this is where a, a Marxist approach to parliamentary tactic, what Lenin, Trotsky, Gramsci and others called revolutionary parliamentarism, is distinguished also from what you might call radical left reformism. I mean, there's no doubt that people like, uh, I don't know, um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn or AOC or whoever are very committed to building social movements. They do. And they can and play and will play an important role there. And where possible, we have to collaborate and with those people and so on. But, but for Marxists, it's not about doing parliamentary work and social movements. It's about subordinating work in parliament to the needs of the struggle in the streets. 
to placing the platform and resources in Parliament to the use of the socialist movement more generally. In other words, to be to be more precise, for us, the parliamentary tactic is only of use insofar as allows, strengthens the ability of the workers' movement to breach the limits of parliamentarism itself. Left reformists, I think, might well be committed to building social movements, and I think they often are, but for them, movements are a means and elected positions are the end. For, for socialists, or at least I would argue for socialists, the formula is very much in the reverse. Yeah, I think something that's central to what you lay out in the pamphlet is is that this tactic and strategy uh, has been used by Marxists in the past and should be used currently in relation to where consciousness is, where struggle is, and, and things like that. And when you were touching on uh, the relation even socialist TDs down south have had, like I think about recent, sorry, worker struggles that would have broken out, say, with the taxi drivers. I saw like Richard Boy Barrett would be speaking to crowds and there would be already an assumption of relationships as it is. Just to touch on that then, how have previous revolutionaries and social movements used these strategies in the past and how can understanding of this influence our own actions today well again i mean just to touch on what you said there i mean i think in reading a lot of this work and putting together the various writing uh, in the, the last period i mean first of all what did strike me is that um you know a lot of what the great marxists and so on were saying or doing regarding this i think whether we knew it or not it's what we were a plan because i think a lot of our you know, the organizations behind people for profit involved in it and the TDs and so on already come from a socialist tradition. And, you know, whether they are read on what the Bolsheviks did in, in, in the Tsarist Duma or whatever, I think that they, they've often, um, uh, you know, pursued this kind of strategy any, anyway. But I do think it's important um, to theorize as much as we can um, and to look at the, the, the previous application of, of these tactics, to learn from it, to educate people and so on. Uh, uh, insofar as we can, I think that there is a rich body of work inside Marxism regarding the electoral and parliamentary tactic. I mean, this is a case for Marx and Engels themselves. Um, now, I'm sure you're aware you can cherry pick quotes, um, you know, from from people, and you know, and I think we have to acknowledge that the view of Marx and Engels on the matter underwent a certain evolution over a period of time, and, and I would argue finds its most developed expression in what's called the 1879 circular. Um, and with the added qualification, and this is very, very important, the Marx and Engels were resolute opponents of what Engels called the parliamentary disease, the idea that purely through parliamentary action itself, you could, um, you could uh, 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 bring change. Nevertheless, I think the work of Marx and Engels suggests, I would say, three core reasons for taking electoral work seriously. The first is in order to preserve the political independence of the workers' movement. In other words, to stop other forces from using elections to pull workers behind its banner, something we see very regularly. Second is, to, is, is what Engels called counting our forces, uh, for socialists to use elections to be acquainted with our actual levels of support, even if it's an imperfect method for, for, for doing so. And lastly, as they, they say, it's to bring the, the, uh, to the public uh, forward our revolutionary attitude, in other words, to, to, to put our ideas across. Now, uh, Marx and Engels' advice here shouldn't be read as meaning that every little socialist group under the sun is obliged to stand for election. Rather, I think what I take from it, at least, is, is the idea that the reality of democracy under capitalism, or at least where it exists, and the mass participation of workers in that process inevitably means that the development of an independent working class consciousness, and indeed a working class organisation, will inevitably have to involve some form of electoral participation and parliamentary work, even if the decisive factor remains that of, you know, mass struggle, class struggle, and so on and so forth. And I think, you know, it may be worth touching on other giants of the revolutionary socialism who I think drew similar conclusions. 
Um, I, I've been engaged in a, a, a Rosa Luxemburg reading group recently in Belfast, who's, you know, I suppose best remembered and often quoted for her critique of reformism, which is what we've been reading most recently. But less cited is the fact that Luxembourg stressed that a, a distinctly proletarian parliamentarism, as she coined it, could be a weapon of class struggle and what she says, an indispensable school of the proletariat's political and class maturity, so long as it was subordinate to the working class struggle uh, uh, more generally. And even, you know, closer to home, similar conclusion was drawn by uh, the great Marxist James Connolly. Um, you know, Connolly argued, like Marx, that the, the freedom of the working class must be the work of the working class itself. And for that reason, he famously stated that legislation does not control the lords of industry. It is the lords of industry control legislation. But like Luxembourg, he, he advocated the tactical use of parliament and what he dubbed the, the revolutionary ballot. It's the same people like Gramsci and the, the early Comintern and so on. And I would argue at least that I think the most thorough and sophisticated expression of this, both intellectually and practice, was, was provided by the Bolsheviks, by the high point of the international social organization in the common turn, and in particular by the rich body work from Lenin uh, on parliamentary work. And Dave mentioned a small book um, called uh, Left-Wing Communism, which is, I think, a fantastic polemic, which people should read. Um, and in that, uh, I think it was in that anyway, Lenin urged the, the, the socialist movement to create what he called a new, uncustomary, non-opportunist and non-careerist parliamentarism. And I think that's a fantastic little um, uh, uh, quote, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, that you know, we have to create a, an uncustomary, non-opportunist, non-careerist parliamentarism. We have to break from the, from the style of parliamentary work that is, you know, so uh, deeply embedded in both liberalism and reformism. So I think the tradition of classical Marxism suggests that revolutionary movement must have a base and say parliament as Lenin put it, and to effectively wage a struggle against Parliament itself. Uh, in order to go beyond Parliament, we have to have a base in Parliament. In order to expose the weaknesses of Parliament, we have to be in Parliament. Um, uh, so, you know, we do this not out of any illusions in, 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 um, uh, in bourgeois democracy, but precisely because we want to go beyond the limits of bourgeois democracy into a real and truly egalitarian socialist democracy. Okay, I think one of the, there's the, to paraphrase one of the quotes, it's like that, um, revolutionaries stand on parliament but they don't kiss it like you know and i do think that that's the idea of that like len is trying to get to in terms of the revolutionary representative being like the tribune of the people and bringing the struggles of the people from outside the parliament into the parliament um but then also not just reflecting back the struggle but putting then using the parliament then as a platform to put forward like the ideas of like a socialist alternative um and a revolutionary struggle um because like one of the one of the things that we'll probably discuss is the idea of how the bourgeois use parliament and like democracy, uh, bourgeois democracy as like to legitimize their rule. Um, like the idea of like, well, this is the way things always are. This is like, we often hear it like this is the common sense way that things are done. Um, and that this legitimizes like people, you go and you vote and then whoever gets elected is elected and they're elected because of that reason, not because of, uh, the class interests that they um represent so i do think like lenin uh brings that out um quite well in terms of how revolutionaries should use it and i do think like john was mentioning there the left-wing communism in infantile disorder th th there is between ireland like 2021 and like Tsarist russia um, even in 1920, Lenin was pointing out differences between longer established democracies and that the way like uh, the working class will look at like, well, what's established and, and the parliament. He makes 
particular reference to Britain as like the oldest uh, bourgeois parliament and like how you how the revolutionaries can use like parliament or elections to tap into where the consciousness of the working class is at and then try to bring uh, consciousness forward using the parliament as a platform. And we did mention like the water charges. And I do think that like revolutionary left TDs did play. Um, if you look like how revolutionary left TDs used the parliament to assist the movement in that. Um, like so uh, we mentioned Paul, like the day Paul won the by election in Southwest, Paul Murphy was also the day that was 100,000 people on the street for the for the first time. So like the relationship between that kind of was that in that by election, the issue wasn't whether you support war or charges or don't. The question was, how do you defeat war or charges? And look, we were putting forward the boycott tactic, mass struggle on the streets, whereas at the time Sinn Féin were saying um, essentially like we're against it, elect us into governments. Like I think Jerry Adams came out a couple of days before the election and said Sinn Féin TD should pay their bills. So like that was like elements of like a struggle election, like and which way do we point forward? And I think that's how like that's an example of how like you can use an election to like assist the movement that's developing from below um, on the streets and then like putting forward like, you know, like the most like the military using the parliament to put forward the militant tactic to assist the movement uh, to move forward against like obviously like the like you had the threats from the neoliberal parties, Phil Hogan, turn your water off down to a trickle, but like being a voice for that struggle on the streets. I do think like that's that's part of how like the revolutionary left and socialist TDs can like use parliament to, to move things forward in society uh, like on behalf of the working class. Yeah, I think that, that that's a, a, an important point, Dave, especially, I mean, as you said, um, the difference between Russia in 1906 and say, you know, what Lenin was writing about in 1920 or indeed what Lenin's writing about in 1920 in one country and writing about another country or indeed 1920 and today. And I think that's important because in different countries and at different times, we will face various different challenges. Um, you know, Lenin used the example of the existence of a British Labour Party um, and sort of suggested, you know, a particular tactical orientation towards the, the Labour Party that would, would have been slightly different than the, the, the kind of strategy uh, employed by the Bolsheviks. Um, and you could point to whole sorts of different examples of how we have to deal with the existence of Sinn Féin, for example. We aren't a classical, what Lenin called, bourgeois workers' party, but nevertheless represent um, uh, large sections of the working class. How you deal with the existence, for example, of DSA in America that is, you know, sort of one foot in the Democratic Party and one foot out, and so on and so forth. So I, I, what I would stress is that the classical Marxist tradition is not a precise prescription. Um, it's not, you have to you distinguish between what is a model and what is a hypothesis. It's not an exact model. It's not a recipe that you can just apply blindly. They, they are general um, intellectual propositions, general coordinates, I think, for, you know, Marxists to deal with the concrete circumstances that are, that are in front of us. Um, and I think critically, one of the things that it kind of enforces on us is to think, OK, well, we might have to re relate to, uh, you know, a, a reformist party. We have to relate to whatever the, the circumstances may be. But how do Marxists consider parliamentary work? How do Marxists consider the electoral tactic, even at a certain level of abstraction? Um, we shouldn't adopt an approach which I think is very, very damaging to say, well, render on to the reformist parliamentary work and render on to us the struggle in the streets. 
I think that um, the classical Marxism suggests that that is a, a, a damaging strategy. Yeah, I think the one thing that comes across in your pamphlet is like the depth of Lenin's thought and his tactical awareness in terms of like how elections could be used, should you use elections, should you stand, um, and then relating that to like the different conditions in each country. And like there, there are parts where he's saying you can't just like, like kind of export like Russia and put it on like Germany in 1920 or 1921. Um, and he's like, like he's kind of arguing that you look at the concrete situation that you're in, where the working class is in and what like the, you know, like the historical peculiarities of the particular country um, are. And I do think that that's like, like it demonstrates like a, a real depth of thought and like, like tactical thinking. Uh, and he's advising that rather than some, one size fits all, um, you know, like one size fits all approach that can be can be applied anywhere. Though, like there are principles, like like on, on the tactical question of using it, there's like no one size fits all approach, but there's key principles behind the methods, um, and like how you approach elections and and parliament, which are, which which form the basis of of any tactical tactical approach you use in any country. Something that I think comes through in the pamphlet as well is certainly in the writing of a lot of the, the Marxists that Chan would have mentioned is that strategies and tactics are labelled as such because they are relevant to the circumstances of today. Like you, you can't rule out engaging in electoralism works today uh, and something more akin to a boycott strategy works tomorrow. But what does strike me from reading it is how the method outline it is fairly intuitive in that if you want to build a movement, you have to be where people are moving into struggle. And there's a whole host of previous socialist and Marxist movements engaging in kind of rotten parliaments or corrupt unions or imperfect campaigns as a way of establishing links and helping to like point a way forward and to, to engage in that struggle. Um, something that's tied to this which is discussed in the pamphlet good bit is is the conception of hegemony and in the pamphlet you discuss both working class hegemony in movements and socialist hegemony as a whole so i guess just to outline what is what does this concept mean uh, in the context of elections and mass work oh well the, the concept of hegemony is sometimes afforded a kind of mystical power on the left um especially within sections of the academy who um sort of took gramsci's conceptualization of it and you sort of robbed it of its uh, material base and, and as I say, kind of afforded a kind of uh, mystical power. I mean, hegemony in the context of the pamphlet uh, that I wrote, in the context of socialist movement in the run-up to the October Revolution, in other words, had a very specific meaning. I mean, it was the concept that distinguished two particular strategies inside the, the, the Russian socialist movement. The first was a strategy that was um, mainly, but not only associated with the Mensheviks, that argued that the labor movement should form an alliance with liberalism, with the bourgeoisie, in other words, in order to strengthen the movement against the czar. And in electoral terms, this meant that the socialist movement should limit its arguments to arguments and demands that could appeal to liberal forces and to subordinate itself in some respects to those liberal forces in what was called a, a progressive bloc. Um, Lenin and the Bolsheviks argued that this would cede hegemony to, to, to liberalism um, and in the process would weaken the independent organization of workers. And, and critically, not just weaken the independent organization of workers, but would in turn weaken the wider anti-Zarist movement, as liberals would always eventually compromise with, with the system, as, as the Bolsheviks argued. So effectively, the strategic choices were either to fight for, for the hegemony of the workers' movement uh, inside the anti-Zarist movement, um, and therefore to fight for socialist hegemony within the workers' movement itself, or to apply what we would call today a form of lesser evilism. 
Um, and you could again, you could use a contemporary example. Uh, the most obvious one strikes me is, you know, the way some people on the left say that the best we can hope for in the US is to kind of periodically fall behind the lesser evilism of the Democrats um, instead of working to establish an independent pole of attraction. And however rudimentary form that might take, and I, I can uh, acknowledge that the, the task is an enormous one. So I think the concept of hegemony, especially as it's formed inside the, 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 the Bolshevik experience, but also the way it's later developed by Gramsci, compels the left, I think, to reject two problematic uh, approaches or two, two problematic strategies, if, if you prefer. The first is what Lukács called, the Hungarian Marxist uh, Lukács, called a messianic sectarianism. The idea that all you have to do is build a revolutionary party with the correct revolutionary program, and that at some point history will come knocking and ask you to lead a revolution, right? I think the concept of hegemony um, uh, uh, compels us to consider how we actually build support beyond our ranks and build kind of the movements and struggles and organizations beyond our ranks that can strengthen the workers movement more generally rather than just our own, own our own forces. And the second is, I think, something that's quite prevalent on the left today, which you might call a kind of uh, moralism, the idea that really the strength of our moral arguments or the, put it on, uh, the moral force of our arguments, put it that way, is enough uh, for the left um, to win the kind of change that we want uh, to, to win. It doesn't matter whether we can win people, it doesn't matter how many people we have, as long as our, our we have right uh, uh, on our side. And I think this is a problematic approach. And I think hegemony and the concept of it, again, compels us to consider, well, how can we imagine building the coalitions that could potentially win certain demands, but also how can we imagine winning the kind of coalitions, the kind of movements, the kind of struggles, that can actually uh, potentially create, you know, the, the possibility of moving beyond uh, uh, capitalism. In other words, how do we move from being a minority to something that can at least conceivably win a majority? And I think that's uh, 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 important. So the utility of the concept of hegemony is that it encourages revolutionary sources to consider how we might widen our influence in society, how we can pull sections of society beyond our ranks and the struggle, how we can create the necessary as Gramsci put it, the counter-hegemonic apparatus rooted in working class life that is capable of maintaining uh, a socialist influence in politics between the ebbs and flows of struggle. And I think that's very, very important. I think that the experience, the high points of socialist organization um, and our own modest experience here in Ireland suggests that having a base in parliament and having a base in local councils and having an intervention in, in elections can be one element, not necessarily the critical element, but still, still a necessary element in the construction of a wider counter-hegemonic apparatus that can pull and bring large sections of society, or at least to begin with small sections of society beyond our ranks uh, with us in the struggle for socialism. Yeah, I think that's laid out very well. It's not something that I would have been as familiar with. I would have been aware of the concept of hegemony through Gramsci, but less aware of you know, developing that theory and how it relates to electoral or mass work and the interlinked thing between that. And I think in Rupture in the magazine, we would it would have been written a lot about um, the kind of dual task that Marxists have today in one, rebuilding that broader workers movement and aiding those moving into struggle and giving that form and content. Um, and then at the same time, developing Marxists who like have an understanding of the strategy and tactic and what potholes we're looking to avoid. Well, I was just, I was just going to say that you know, one aspect of hegemony, or if you will, the, the necessary basis for actually developing a hegemonic strategy is a socialist organization. 
Um, and the reason I say that is because there is often, you know, I, I argue that, the, you know, there's a problem of those who deny the necessity of fighting for hegemony and have a kind of sectarian approach. But there's also an approach on sections of the um, uh, particularly sort of academic Marxist movements and so on and so forth who do, do deny the necessity, the foundation of actually fighting for some sort of hegemony is some form of organization, some form of revolutionary combination, perhaps not the fully fledged revolutionary party of uh, uh, Russia in October 1917, but something. Um, uh, and that's what I mean by it's sometimes afforded a kind of mystical quality. You know, people say, well, we have to fight for hegemony. Well, who's we? And how do we apply it if we don't have an organization of some form, even in a rudimentary sense? Um, uh, so, you know, I, I think that's probably necessary as a qualification. One thing that will often come up when I speak with others who favour boycott tactics or dislike the idea of engaging in elections is that while the tactic might seem beneficial in the short term, in reality it's a slippery slope which leads to more and more unprincipled stances being taken in the name of getting re-elected or seeking favour. How do you respond to these concerns and how do you feel activists can resist these conservative pressures? Well, the f- first thing I would say about that is, for obviously, the first most obvious point is that I don't have all the answers, um, uh, far from it. Um, uh, And the second point, I think, is to stress, um, and I think all the great Marxists were very clear on this, is that these pressures are inevitable and that some pull towards opportunism is absolutely inevitable. I mean, even if you elect the most dedicated, the most principled people to these positions, which we should certainly do and strive to do, and I think we, we do strive to do, it's inevitable that they will come under pressure to succumb to electoral pressures. Um, now, again, um, not to hark back to dead Russians, but um, I, I think Lenin said that acknowledging this shouldn't result in what he called the politics of nervousness. The idea that because opportunist pressures are inevitable, that therefore we shouldn't do parliamentary work or indeed that we should do it. And I think sometimes the, the Irish left is a little bit guilty of this, that we should do it, but not openly talk about it. Um, uh, and I think that's a, a mistake. Instead, I think it requires the Marxist fight for a culture and a method of revolutionary parliamentarism. Now, sections of the left don't like this because they don't like the term parliamentarism, right? But I want to be absolutely clear about why people like Lenin, uh, uh, Trotsky, Gramsci, and others use the term revolutionary parliament, par- parliamentarism. And it was precisely because engaging in electoral uh, and parliamentary work will inevitably involve elements of parliamentarism, uh, including things like casework, parliamentary questions, parliamentary bills, and and whatever. So we should acknowledge that, and we should explain to people why that, what Lenin called the lowest form of work, why that grubby parliamentary work is a necessary element to what we're doing. And we should acknowledge it in order to acknowledge it and to understand that this must be subordinated to a wider uh, social strategy. Now, I, I think that the Marx at least the classical Marxist tradition, including, as I said, the experience of the Bolsheviks, which I wrote about uh, uh, to some extent. I mean, it, uh, to repeat, shouldn't be treated as a precise blueprint for engaging in, in parliamentary work. Um, I, I think Dave said it already, but particular circumstances always dictate the particular nature of the tactic. Nevertheless, I think that the theorization, the application of revolutionary parliamentarism within the Marxist tradition provide us with some critical uh, political and intellectual coordinates that, as I said, could can help, can assist us in navigating our way through these contradictions, through these inevitable pressures uh, uh, that come engaging in elections. 
and I maybe just highlight a couple. I mean, there's all sorts of ones that maybe Dave wants to come in and, and, and some other. But firstly, we have to be on guard against what Marxists call parliamentary cretinism, right? Or, or as Engels called it, the parliamentary disease. The idea that our politics can be advanced by shady maneuvers or backroom deals or the idea, and this, this happens, it's a human condition in some respects, that we can build, that we can bring the kind of change we want by building some sort of special relationship with certain politicians in private, you know, that we can somehow advance our cause if we're just clever enough and, uh, uh, and so on. Um, uh, you know, as Lenin said, the parliamentary work is necessary, but it, it's always the lowest form of work. It always has to be subordinated to, 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 to the movement. It can never be um, our, our primary form of activity. Secondly, it's absolutely imperative, I think, that those elected to parliamentary positions in a socialist organization are held to account, are never held above the party, um, are, are never afforded a special place in the, in, in the party. Now, this doesn't mean you know, the TDs or MLAs or councillors can't be on a leadership of the party. That's ridiculous. I mean, a lot of the TDs and councillors bring with them a connection and an experience with um, both arguments and politics and indeed sections of workers and communities that can greatly enrich organisations. So it would be ludicrous to have that kind of pro prohibition. Uh, but what it means is that TDs and MLAs shouldn't be allowed to dictate party policy on account of their, their position in Parliament. Now, this is what happens in a lot of reformist organizations where the parliamentary body is automatically the leadership of the party or um, if some other structure exists as they often do british labor party and so on they can ignore it you know if there's a resolution passed at a conference they can do as they please and the british labor party used to have a conference every year and every single year they would pass a motion about nuclear disarmament and then the parliamentary body every single year would just ignore it um, so a socialist organization can't be built like this. And it, it sh you know, should be said that this is where our method, I think, distinguishes us from reformists. Um, and I think where we're in an organization with reformists, it's important to, as best as we can, apply these counter pressures on those reformists, again, not to kind of adapt or render onto the reformists' parliamentarism and onto us the streets. But I also think it should encourage us to think about, and this is often not talked about, but the weaknesses of a very prevalent tendency on the Irish left, um, uh, stretching back to people like Tony Gregory and finding expression in a whole series of independent left TDs today, where political organizations are built around individual representatives uh, uh, and whatever their many merits, and many of them have, have done very uh, good things for, 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 for the struggle, um, seem to have the exclusive function of getting that councillor or TD re-elected. I think that this is a regressive um, tendency on the Irish left that we should have an open conversation about. Um, in other words, the problem in creating a mass socialist organization in Ireland is not, I'm afraid, only the fault of the big bad trapped organizations. I think that uh, the tendency, uh, if you will, the clientelism that uh, places um, uh, the onus uh, or, or that affords an independence to these TDs and so on to do as they please and to, to, to build organizations primarily around them. Whilst it can be a contri contribution in certain circumstances to struggle, I'm not saying everything's the same and everybody's as bad as each other, but I think it's aggressive. I think we need to create an organization where TDs and councillors are part of a 32 county party, where they're, they collaborate with other sections of the party and where ultimately they are... Um, allowed, of course, to contribute as much as they, they need to and as much as they want, but that they are held to account for, to, to, to the party. Um, now, lastly, I don't mean that 
any of this should mean that we fall into the trap of what Lenin called caricature Bolshevism. You know, um, uh, you know the idea that because of the nature of elected positions uh, and because of the inevitability of mistakes, um, that we should panic and revert to an ultra left posture every time a mistake um, uh, happens. The question for me isn't, you know, uh, whether we can avoid mistakes. Um, we will make mistakes. The question is, do we have the capacity and the culture in our organization that's capable of rectifying those mistakes and to amend them? Um, uh, so I, I think generally, a mistake, I think those pressures are inevitable. Um, uh, I think that we should take them as they come. I think that we should um, have a system of accountability over elected representatives. That accountability has to be both ways. We can't just be us telling the TDs and councillors what to do. We have to listen to them, collaborate with them. I would also just say this. I mean, just to be clear, right? I mean, see, you're in a council, you're in a doyle. Votes come up um, sometimes with amendments off the cuff. Right. So you can have a, a kind of, you know, system of accountability, but there will be times as well in committees, councils, uh, Doyle, MLA and so on and so forth, where TDs have to take positions or even the parliamentary body more broadly has to take positions without some big AGM or National Council or something for us to have a full conversation. I think that's inevitable. And I think we have to. So it's not just us telling them you got to do this and you have to do that and so on and so forth. We also have to be conscious of the pressures and the difficulties that they face. It's not always easy being a councillor. It's not always easy being a TD. It's not always easy being an MLA. They will face serious, serious difficulties. And I think that the comrades in, in, that we have in those positions need the support, um, political, the moral, the structure, stru structural support to help them in their deliberations as, as they go along. Yeah, I think um, there, there, there's a few things touched on there which kind of like... Um, are kind of part of the argument that like people on the left who are against elections would kind of uh put forward and i do think like ultimately the solution is socialist organization which is and like a, like strong like politics in the organization that can act as like a guide um on like elected uh representatives so like one of the things which people on the left who are against elections would say is that like once you win a seat um, well, then the thing then for the organization becomes trying to keep the seat. Um, and I do think what uh, Sean was saying there about like how there's like independent left TDs, um, like and there's whole loads of them over the years um, who like getting reelected and not building an organization has become like the main focus. Or else you have a situation where the TD becomes like the face of the party and then like. So like you're going around and it's like, oh, you're the TD party. Like uh, the TD becomes like the, like the party rather than like the organization. Um, and I do think like there are two, um, tr two dangers um, within that. And like, I do think that like, like it, it is a real thing that like when, like, so if you're a party on the left in Ireland and you get people elected, um, like it does give you like benefits like in terms of you have that platform and then um you have like there, there are like material benefits like you get the horse staff and then that can then become the driving factor um or become like a, a, a big factor in terms of like softening your cough on issues or well what's the what's the correct position versus a position that like you can like it's not a socialist position you might have to take up an unpopular position um at certain times and that can become a factor and i do think that is like one of the things that like on the left 
we have to like stand against. But I do think um like if you're like a MLA or a TD, like you're in a certain position where you come under different forms of pressure. So there are the pressures in the doll where they're trying like it's like a cozy club or up in um Stormont where it's like you know like it's like a gang, it's like a club and like oh you should fit into the club like you know and to stand against that can be like difficult like I'd say even on a human level you have all these like Fianna Gael TDs trying to say hello to you and whatever like you know like but like uh, politically to try and like uh, to try and move you to the right or to make you compromises to get this idea that that you're in the club is um, something that needs to be um, stood against Um, but I I, I do think and like like public representatives uh, will make will make mistakes but I do think like the solution to that is kind of like having a strong organization, like and it taking all the points that like they may have to make quick decisions, but like reviewing stuff saying, was that correct? What we did, is there something there that we can learn from the future? Like, do we have like a position on something which should guide what we say on, on this, on this upcoming issue? And I do think like the org, like there is the relationship between like, it's not the, all the members calling up the team be saying, but I do think like that having like that political organization that's like supporting the TD, like in terms of are there MLA in terms of the, the like the decisions, but also like to be like politically considering like the events that are coming up and in terms of like the best ways that like left or socialist ideas can be put forward through the platform of the doll as a as a support. Like you can't just expect whoever it is to um to come up with all the answers themselves. Um and I do think there's one one final thing is that I do think um, in terms of all the arguments that people will have against, oh, like if you get involved in elections, like it it, it drags you down a road. There's also the flip side of that, where if you've gone out, you've said, look, we're socialists, we want to fight for like revolutionary change. We stand with working class people. And if you do get elected, like it's not like it, working class people then actually like have put you in there and they do expect you to actually do what you said you would do. And I do think that is a, another like good, correct, like corrective that can push against um, like any moves to the right or any, any accommodation. Like if, if you just got elected and you didn't turn up to the doll or if you got elected by like working class in working class areas and then you are doing deals like with whoever, Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, or you are voting through um, stuff which attack the material living conditions of working class people. Um, like they wouldn't be, like they'd let you, you'd know about it fairly quickly. Um, but but also like that can be a corrective um, or like using, um, like by being in the working class, like it can help it like adapt, like give you an understanding in terms of where consciousness is, but also like what the needs of the working class as a whole are yeah just one point i would uh, make uh, to to kind of expand upon that because i think it's very very important um you know when we often on the left when we talk about councils or parliamentary work we say it's a platform right and by platform that means the reason we use that term is it means we have a kind of healthier reverence for those institutions you know in in the way that a lot of the conventional parties uh, don't. But one thing that I think, and this really struck me reading through the approach of the um, sort of Marxist tradition uh, towards electoral work, is that when they, when we say platform, 
for them, it wasn't about just getting in to give speeches. I mean, it was, this is very, very evident, particularly in the um, experience of the Bolsheviks. They saw those positions as organizing positions. They saw those positions and that platform, if you will, as um, uh, positions that were capable of initiating movements, calling struggles, calling protests and so on and so forth. So we have to get it through, I think, you know, and, and help and work with the people who get elected, that when they get elected, yes, they're in there to use platform and get up and make our argument or make, you know, sort of our line and so on. But they're also there as agitators. They're using their position to build movements insofar as they can. Um, you know, not everybody can be the best agi mass agitator and so on and so forth, but that's your, your job to use your position and platform and, and the authority that it affords you to whatever extent that is the case in order to initiate campaigns and initiate struggle. And that is, Dave's absolutely right. Whatever the structures you have, you, we could create, we could sit here and create the most beautifully created proper structures that will have all sorts of layers of democratic accountability and subcommittees and new committees and so on and so forth. Uh, in the end, it's the organic relationship between our elected representatives and working class communities, the organic relationship between our elected representatives and movements that will hold people to account. That was a very comprehensive overview of the, the whole strategy, the relationship between this type of activity and the building of movements, how it can affect the party, how it can affect representatives and the relationship that you have to have to ensure that you don't give in to that pressure. I mean, there's been plenty, there's a handful of examples that often come up of, of socialist movements in the past faltering uh, around these tactics or allowing it to, to cause a, a drip in terms of uh, principle or, or approach. Uh, but I think what's been laid out there is is, is very, very solid. And anyone who, who wants more of this or, or wants to to dive into even more examples or discussion of this should read Shan's pamphlet which I'll, which I'll link below and uh, I'll just say for now then thanks a million for joining us Shan that, that was fantastic thanks very much anytime thanks Dave for joining me too so uh, 